Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy and also in the studio this morning we have to say a very good morning to both Stephen Ryan and Virginia Haywood. Morning, both of you. Good, good morning. Good wow. morning. <laughs> and it is. Nearly uniform. <laughs> yes, it, it is a good morning, except that I do hate these mornings when the sun's bright and shiny and I've got to drive down the colder freeway at this time of the morning. Oh, yes, you get because, it straight oh, in your straight eyes. Straight in your eyes. I mean, there's a couple of spots where I could hardly see where I was driving yep. uh, because the sun was coming so directly towards me, even with sunglasses on and the visor down and all that sort yes. of stuff. So... Uh, but at least it was 100 k's down the Tullamarine Freeway this morning. Uh, I wish they'd get that sorted. I don't understand why I'm paying tolls to drive at 80. Yes. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And they spent all that money on these extra lanes and everything. That's and they've right. slowed the speed down. That's right. So it was quite a relief to see that they'd ha- they had it up at 100 this morning. So okay. I was quite pleased. I got in even slightly earlier than normal. Well, so there you go. <laughs> so there you go. So, But lovely morning. It looks like it's going to be a gorgeous day. And it's a good day to go out and fight your jungle. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, mine is just, just outrageous. It's I mean, like overnight. Yeah, my paths are disappearing. Yes. You know, everything is just so full and I don't think I've ever seen my garden looking as verdant as it does this year. Mm. It is just outrageous. Mm. Stuff is growing over the driveway and drooping over everything because everything's soft and sappy and it's all sort of coming out and arching over. So as long as we don't get a 45 degree day too quickly, things should be fine. Yep, yep. (laughs) Well, I'm cursing because I was, two weeks ago, I looked at my apple tree and thought, oh, Gosh, I've got so many little apples. I really must get round to bagging uh, those. Yes. <sighs> I finally got round to doing it yesterday, and half of them have been eaten by the parrots already. And I'm already, and they're they only tiny. Yeah. yeah and I thought you rotten things, and they've taken a peck out of each one. Of yeah, course. Yes. Anyway, I've I've got half a crop with but a bit of luck. I got a colander full of cherries. Did you? Off my cherry tree this year, which doesn't happen very often because the birds normally get those no. before they I, ripen. I don't get the cherries, and mm. I don't. Un- Last year, the king parrots mm. got stuck into my mm. garden. Mm. But my apples so far, I've got quite a few. Yep, mm. yep. They're, well, they're all right. I've actually caught um, one of the uh, rosellas eating my raspberry that was so little, mm. you could ve- barely notice there was a fruit, you know, yeah, so trying so to come. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they were still brown. They hadn't developed at all. And there it was, you know, Locked onto one of the canes and, and I thought, this is ridiculous. Are you that starving when everything's so verdant? Yeah. Why aren't the birds, you know, There should be plenty on, out for well, them. Well, there should be stacks of the food. rabbits the same. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, the rabbits. There's, uh, my neighbour has got a black rabbit that she sees all the time. Mm. Right. Just sitting in, in the next door neighbour's paddock. And yep. When I jillarooed a thousand years ago, the old geezer on the property, this was out in Western Australia, he said, if you see a black rabbit, you know you've got a plague because mm. it's a recessive gene and you only see a black rabbit for every thousand ordinary rabbits. Right. I've seen two. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
Yes, well, I have to say I'm not suffering from rabbit problems at the moment, Touchwood. There's a few of them around. When I drive around, I'll see them along the sides of the roads and stuff, but they haven't come into our garden to do any major damage. But, of course, the possums are doing a good job of cleaning up some (laughs) of my nice verdancy. my poor maples. The possums love maples. Oh, really? Yeah, and they give my maple trees a real hiding. There's, there's one near my garage that I think I'm going to have to take out oh. uh, because for two years it's hardly got any leaves on it because the possums just clean it up. But the other problem is if you take that one out, they'll move to another tree. Well, they will. You can leave it there as... as <laughs> but it looks so awful, Virginia. Well, I mean, I hate having hospital it. cases. No, it, it, there's nothing I can really do with it because it's a quite tall lanky maple. It's one of the snake bark maples. And it's uh, so close to the roof that yeah, they can I, just get right, They access. can actually sit on the spouting <laughs> and just pull it over and eat it. So there's no way I can sort of protect the tree. My, Lazy my brother has had magnolias on his magnolia for the first time because he's been putting food on the roof for the possums. Mm. He's been putting apple, lettuce, yep. you know, things on the roof and they've okay. just let his magnolia flower. He's so pleased with himself. Yeah. yeah. I always have the fear, though, that if I start feeding them, they're going to bring their neighbours. I don't think that's true because they're mm. quite territorial. They're territorial, yeah. 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 So they don't want anybody Well, maybe else. they'll breed up more, though. <laughs> oh, they, they could well do that. Yeah. You'd have to be giving them a lot of food. Yeah. But, yes, I've got a neighbour who feeds them, much to my annoyance, and, oh, they, and they virtually come out and eat out of her hand. Oh. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so, but. You're fighting a look, losing battle. Of course you are. Uh, but as I point out to people, I suppose all of the issues we have, uh, albeit rabbits or possums or whatever else, at least we don't have to contend with elephant. <laughs> well, for me, it was the pomegranates last year. That's what the king parrots got stuck into. Oh, yes. And they my, love pome- them. my pomegranates are not very nice. No. Mm. I don't know. They're if not I'd, really big, lushy ones. I, I don't know. I don't know if they just don't get enough heat, if mm. that's what keeps them a bit bitter and not sweet. Mm. So I don't mind if they have them. Mm. I just the one thing I really they haven't discovered yet and I really don't want them to have are the walnuts. My walnuts are so fabulous. Oh, yes. Don't want the them in. I don't care about, like the walnuts. Don't care about the cherries. They can have the cherries. Yeah. I'll go around the corner and buy them from <laughs> I quite like the idea of actually getting some of my own occasionally, though, seeing as I've got the tree. Yes, but, uh, exactly. But, but the walnuts are just so, I mean, f- new, mm. just yep. off the tree. They're yep. so wonderful. Yeah. They're so much better than what you buy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. They're dried up things, those. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we have to live and contend with all these critters, but anyhow. We do. It is all part of it. It uh, is. And, and it's funny because we have a dislike for certain critters because they do some damage in the garden and then we spend all our time trying to encourage other critters into the garden. <laughs> That's right. Um, we're very selective about things, really. You know, we, we want our honey eaters, but we don't want our blackbirds. <laughs> and I want blue-banded bees. Oh, yes. Well, I'd like Just because they're cute. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is going to sound very environmentally unfriendly, but I want bumblebees. Well, you can't have them. Well, I've got them in Tasmania. I don't see why I can't have them. <laughs> well, I've just come back from New Zealand. Yeah, they've got them over there too, bumblebees. They've got thousands upon thousands of them. Yeah, yes. and they're so cute and they're so benign and harmless. And yeah, yeah. These things bumble around and I just love bumblebees. They, they, would, they would be terrible for our native bees. Yeah, well, they could be. I don't know. I don't know what impact they've had in Tasmania. It would be interesting to actually know whether anybody's mm. done any assessments. Because, mm. you know, one of the issues was because they wanted to bring bumblebees into mainland Australia because they help to pollinate things like tomatoes far better than 
other bees because they're big and heavy and they vibrate the pollen out of the tomato plants very well. Yep. And so they wanted to bring them over for tomatoes uh, and there was a big hue and cry about, you know, oh, well, it'll displace this or it'll do that or they'll pollinate things that haven't become weedy and that will suddenly become weedy and there was all these sort of conspiracy theories about what would happen if bumblebees came into mainland Australia. But nobody seems to be able to tell me whether they've had any real impact in Tassie. And they've been there for a long time. Mm. So it'd be interesting to know whether they have. Yeah, it would be. Because they are so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I can't help myself. I just love bumblebees. Yes, I think they are are lovely. But Mm. I think that clearly they're going to be competing with Mm. other bees. For I mean, my place is so full of bees and there's Mm. so many native bees. I don't know what they are either. No, I've not been. Which is a really... We should buy a bee book. There must be a bee book. Oh, there's a native bee book. But we don't want want a honey bee book. We want a native bee book. Well, see, that therein is another interesting issue. I mean, we don't make a big deal about honey bees and they're not native either. True. You know, they're an exotic species that we bought in. Yes, but we don't... They're here. I mean, the question is bringing in... New well, oh, yes, you're right. We've it's, the honeybee is already here, but it's it's like all these things. We have this weird sort of thing. That one's useful, so we'll do that one. But that one's benign, but not useful, so we don't have it. Uh, and there's all these different gradients that we have. I mean, I have some. Well, those br- those brown miners, which mm. we hate, 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 mm. and they've been here for 150 years. At yeah. some stage, we've got to accept them. Yeah, well, they're a new native. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're a new native or something. I don't know, but uh, I have the same sort of weird feeling about this business about truffle infused trees too. I mean we're bringing in an exotic fungi mm. to grow because we can make right. money out of it You're right. and it's not a native fungi and no. yet nobody seems to think it's a bad idea to, to release this out into the wild mm. and look it may in fact have no particular impact one way or the other but I don't know that anybody's actually ever checked it no. or thought about it no. further no. than the fact that we can make money out of truffles yeah. mm. Um, mm. and actually we've got an interesting thing happening up at Mount Macedon at the moment they're, they're um, felling a lot of the radiata pine forests up there at the moment because uh, they've all got since the Ash Wednesday fires up to loggable size and the talk is that they're going to not replant with radiata up on Mount Macedon they're actually going to put it back to native bush which all sounds really good but there's a lot of tourists that come up to Mount Macedon who enjoy walking through the pine forests, particularly Europeans. Um, and there's a whole fungi sort of thing that has evolved with the pine trees that as soon as the pine trees go, all those fungi will disappear. Yes, of course. You know, so we won't see the fly agarics and, and all those other fungi. We won't see the pine mushrooms, which are delicious. Uh, all those things are going to disappear um, unless they keep some of those coops of pine trees just for their, I guess, their aesthetics value. But radiata is so weak. They'll keep being around, won't they? Well, they may, although even that's interesting because the uh, the yellow-tailed black cockatoos have learned how to ha- learnt about the food source within pine cones. Mm. And I noticed down at Lawn last week, there's a couple of pine trees on the side of the the road. Yep. And underneath them is great piles I of know. ripped to pieces <clears throat> pine cones, and there's not a seed in there. <clears throat> and I reckon that once one of our native animals gets onto a food source like that, they'll actually control it to extent themselves, because not so much seed will get out into the wild. And they're very important for the black cockatoos. Yeah. They love Very them. important. Yeah, yeah. You know, they'll, they'll go from a hakea to a, a pine tree straight away if they can do it. Well, my place, you get 
heaps of them and they sit up there and they literally throw the pine cones down at you and it's, it's dangerous to put out the rubbish bin. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's, but yeah, so it, it is interesting to because to, we've sort of mucked things up so badly in one way or another that you wonder if we haven't done all of the worst things we possibly can and anything else we do might not actually be that bad. Oh yes, so what, we'll have Dutch elm disease too? Oh yeah, well, but then there'd be people out there that say that's alright because elms aren't natives, you know, so there'd be those who would uh, but say... But that, that is really stupid as we've got the last great stand of elms in Melbourne in the world. Oh yes, yes and they are really important. Although in the trees in New Zealand, oh mm. I just couldn't believe these elms, I've never seen such big trees. Yeah. They were absolutely... They grow everything big over there because they've got those wonderful deep soils and oodles of rain. Exactly. And everything oh, grows vast. The trees were yeah. just I just... Mm. I were, and I think having an earthquake city is so wonderful because when they rebuild, the trees are bigger than the buildings. It does make it rather beautiful. Puts <laughs> yeah. it into balance. Yes, <laughs> trees should rule, obviously. <laughs> <sighs> Amazing. Okay, well, I'm going to plough have through. Any, a f- have we got announcements? Well, yeah, because what I have to do, oh. and I'll remind listeners that this is our last show for the year. Of course. Mm. And we're taking a break. We won't be back till the first Sunday in February. And because of that... There's things which I really need to um, tell listeners about that will be taking place in January, and I won't be able to tell them in January. Yep, no, so, that's, that's yep. logical. I was thinking, what the earth is anybody doing at this time of the year? But no, there you no, go. Yes. no, no, there you go. So this is advance notice for people's diaries. <laughs> <laughs> um, first up, a reminder, I've been mentioning this the last couple of weeks. Um, Cloud Hill Gardens have a whole series of events taking place uh, throughout uh, not just December but January, February and on e- even into March. Um, but uh, their first one coming up is Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. It's happening on Friday the 28th and Saturday the 29th of December, 6.30 till 8.30. Cost is adults $35, under 16s $25. Now you need to bring a folding chair or a cushion and dress appropriately for the weather um, you're welcome to bring a bottle of wine and a picnic in the gardens before the show, uh, but come along early. So gates will open at 5 o'clock for that one. Now also coming up uh, a little later, on Saturday the 26th of January, uh, there'll be Nellie in her own right, which is artists from the Melbourne Opera Trust. They'll be performing in the garden there for that one uh, night only, Saturday 26th of January, Cost for that one is adults $50, under 16s $30. And uh, I will mention one more. Uh, this is coming up Saturday, 9th of February, um, A Night in Brittany. It's being performed by Evergreen Ensemble. And uh, again, adults $30, under 16s $20. And if you want to find out more or to book for any of these events, um, you simply go to Cloud Hill website. Just type in Cloud Hill and it will all come up for you. Uh, there will be other events, but uh, we'll be back, so we'll mention those um, a little later on. Now, uh, there are some garden openings for Open Gardens Victoria, and the first uh, garden openings are three um, gardens, all designed by Fiona Brockoff. Uh, now, this is taking place on the weekend of January the 12th and 13th. Uh, they're all down at Mornington Peninsula, um, in fact, very close to each other, two, I think, are within walking distance. So the three that are opening 
Carcalla, uh, which is Fiona's um, personal house and garden, which is 10 Keating Avenue in Sorrento. Then there's the Arnott Street Garden at 27 Arnott Street in Sorrento. And the third one is Main Ridge Garden, which is at 160 Barkers Road in Main Ridge. Now, as I said, they're open uh, Saturday the 12th, Sunday the 13th of January, 10 a.m. through to 4.30 p.m. both days. Entry is $10 for each garden, children under 18 free, and students $5. Now, also um, in the Main Ridge Garden, uh, Fiona herself will be giving some garden talks uh, in the afternoon, I think 2 o'clock through till 4 o'clock on both days. Uh, that's at the Main Ridge Garden there in Barkers Road, Main Ridge. So, uh, so if you're at all interested in having a, a look at uh, some wonderful Australian native gardens there, um, bear that in mind for um, something to do in January. Now, Open Gardens Victoria have uh, decided to go on extensive um, series of workshops running right through the uh, Christmas holidays. Uh, so um, you really do need to go to their website again because they've got all the details up and there's a lot of them. Now, all of these do need to be booked. There is a cost to each of these. They're not, um, they're not free. Uh, but just to uh, mention them in passing so you know what to look for. Firstly, uh, Saturday the 19th of January, uh, the Plumbery is having guided tours. This is a Northgate, uh, Northgate address. Now, all of these, I haven't got the address. The address you will actually be given when you make the booking. Uh, so you do need to go and make the booking if you're at all interested, of course. Now, for the Plumbery... There are three sessions available, uh, 10 till 11, 12 till 1, and 2 till 3. And tickets for that one are $15. Uh, on the 20th of January, which is the Sunday, Spoke and Spade, which is uh, a Heidelberg West address, uh, will be opening. Again, three sessions available, um, guided tours 10 till 11, 12 till 1 and 2 till 3. Again, tickets $15. Um, also on that Sunday, uh, Murundaka, which is uh, Murundaka uh, co-housing community garden. Uh, as I said, it's at Heidelberg Heights. Um, that's uh, that Sunday the 20th again, 10 till 11, just the one opening. Tickets for that are $15 as well. Then coming up uh, 2nd of February, Saturday the 2nd of February, there's a Clifton Hill Productive Garden uh, with two sessions available, 10 till 11, 12 till 1. Again, tickets $15. And uh, also Saturday the 2nd of February, there's a Northcote Productive Paradise uh, with two sessions available, 10 till 11, 12 till 1. Tickets $15. Um, and also at Chesterfield, there's an open garden, an heirloom tomato fair. Uh, now, this one I can give you the address of. It's 221 Noble Street in Newtown. Uh, this is running the weekend of Saturday the 2nd and Sunday the 3rd of February. General entry, uh, $10, 10 a.m. through till 4.30. Uh, and entry is $10, students $5.00. Under 18s are free. 
now the special activities as well, and those activities will be announced uh, on their website. And uh, the other one I need to mention, which is that same Sunday, the 3rd of February, uh, Fruit for Your Backyard. This is Reservoir Food, Forest and Orchard. Now, they're having uh, two different sessions of workshops, um, all taking place on Sunday, the 3rd of February. One uh, workshop uh, will uh, run from 10 through till 11.30. And this one is... um, let me see. Uh, well, it's it's basically exploring the um, the food forest orchard and the berry patch, and uh, discussing a variety of fruit that can be grown in the backyard, including the level of diff- difficulty, size, limitations, and training habits. And the other one, which is taking place at the same address, the Reservoir Food Forest, um, will be all about summer fruit tree pruning. And there'll be two workshops focusing on that one, uh, one till 2.30. Tickets for that one are $30. And I might mention the tickets for the morning one, also $30. So uh, to get your head around all of those workshops, yes. um, you do need to jump on the, on the uh, internet and uh, simply go to Open Gardens Victoria. It will all come up. They'll all be listed. You can pay for your tickets online. You will be given the addresses, uh, times available and all the rest of it. So it's going to be a very, uh, very eventful um, summer holiday for well, um, well, a lot of people. Will any of us have time to do our own gardens? One no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll be so inspired that yeah. uh, we'll come back home and really hoe into it. Yes, we'll have to get a miner's lamp so that we can go out <laughs> and work at night. <laughs> anyway, so that, that concludes everything I have for uh, what's taking place until we get back on the 3rd of February. So um, oh, well, plenty to keep people occupied if you're interested in going along and having a look at some gardens. Well, good. All right. Well, okay. now it's time to do some other stuff, I guess. It is. And <laughs> it, the first thing we should do is open up our lines for talkback. Um, given that this is our last show for the year, if you have a burning question to ask us that you've been meaning to jump on the phone and haven't got round to it, today's the day. So do uh, give us a call. We've got both Stephen and Virginia in the studio, so we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary on the outside line, 94198377. Stephen, let's make a start. All right. Well, (coughs) excuse me. I must mention too, of course, as per usual, the plants that I'm talking about this morning are up on our Facebook page. Excellent. Uh, I assume Liz has got it all sorted. And I apologise to Liz on air that I sent her a wrong name yesterday when I was rushing around getting ready to leave the nursery. So I've rectified it this morning. It was about the first plant that I'm talking about, which is a hydrangea. Um, And again, it's another lovely little dainty Hydrangea. Not all hydrangeas are big buffy things. No, um, that's very dainty. And uh, there's a group of um, Asian hydrangeas called Hydrangea serrata, which has thrown up all sorts of interesting forms and what have you that have been named over a period of time. And they've all got smallish leaves, dainty smallish growth. They rarely grow above a metre. Um, some of them get lovely autumn foliage in their leaves, which is something you don't sort of think about hydrangeas for. And most of them have dainty little lace cap flower heads. And this is one that I think... Uh, Larkman's Nursery may well have imported this one and it's Serrata 
Krug Cobalt, which is C-R-U-G, and it's named after Krug Farm, which is a nursery in Wales. An Uh, extraordinary nursery. Amazing place. I mean, I went in there once, uh, way, way back when I had an import permit at one stage, and it was like letting me loose in a lolly shop. I just went around pulling plants off the benches (laughs) that I'd never heard of before, and I wanted one, you know, and it was just so exciting. So this is a selection that Krug has made, and they've called it Krug Cobalt, because in reasonably acid soils, it goes a good cobalt blue. Ah. But of course, <laughs> it's always <laughs> a risk in pink. <laughs> yeah, it's a risk in naming a hydrangea after a colour, uh, yes. <laughs> because they do tend to change colour depending on the soil and what have you. Now the potting mix I use is slightly acid, so it still surprises me that I can't get crude cobalt to actually go blue um, unless I really dose them with hydrangea bluing tonic or something yes, like right. that. Uh, so they tend to come out pink, uh, and they get little tiny heads of pink flowers with the little uh, beady uh, fertile flowers in the middle and larger bracted petally like flowers around the outside in what a lot of people call hen and chicken or lace cap or whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, and it's just a wonderful, dainty, pretty little hydrangea. And my original stock plant of it that I got from Lachman's ages and ages ago is now out in the garden at the nursery and it's still pink. And yet all of my other hydrangeas <laughs> go blue. Uh, so I do find it somewhat frustrating that it's called cobalt. Um, but it's interesting in the botanic gardens because you've got blue hydrangeas sitting next to pink hydrangeas. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're in the same soil. Yeah, yes. it is. It's, well, part of the thing is, of course, that different hydrangeas have different alkaline tolerances. So some will stay blue, almost immaterial of the soil. Others will, will go pink at the slightest whiff of lime or anything in the ground. Mm. Um, and so you can, in fact, end up with a whole range of different colours if you end up with a whole range of different cultivars. And that's the trick with hydrangeas to an extent. Uh, but, of course, you can play with them and, you know, give them tonics or give them um, some more lime if you want to sort of pink them up. The thing to keep in mind, of course, with hydrangeas is that if you've got a deep pink one, it will end up being a deep blue one but it won't be a pale blue one. And if you have a pale pink one, it will be a pale blue. So, you know, uh, the colour intensity stays the same, immaterial of which colour it actually goes to. And white ones tend to stay white no matter what, except, of course, when they go autumnal, which is the other thing that hydrangeas do that confuses people. Because if they stay on the plant long enough and don't burn off with the heat of summer to actually go into their autumn phase, a lot of them go all sorts of really intriguing autumnal colours, which are beautiful. I think they're wonderful. Yeah, I I love hydrangeas when you can get them to that point. And, of course, in the cooler climates, like up in the Dandenongs and up at Macedon, we do get wonderful Mm. autumnal colours on our hydrangeas. I do too, which is great. And I just think they're superb when they turn those amazing shades. So your white ones will often go shades of green or pink um, when they go into their autumnal thing, but they won't change their normal colour. It will stay white, the material of whether the soil is acid or alkaline. Right. Um, So it can be a lot of fun playing with them, uh, but it is frustrating when I say to people, well, this can be a blue hydrangea. When it is well, if anyone wants to look at some beautiful hydrangeas at the moment, mm. head for the botanic gardens in South Yarra. Mm. The hydrangeas are looking fabulous. Yeah. Well, this Absolutely coolish fabulous. spring has been just so good for the Heidi's. I mean, uh, well, actually everything. <laughs> <laughs> I put up on Facebook yesterday a picture of a bamboo in my garden that has been about three metres tall for about four or five years. And it's sent up its new stems, its new columns up through the plant. And they still haven't fluffed out. They're still sort of just canes, more or less. And they're twice the height of the original old column. So this whole bamboo is going to be twice the height wow. uh, in almost no time whatsoever uh, in the one season because it's had so much spring rain. 
Well, so I, there you go. I do think we have to worry about the grapes if this rain doesn't back off. Yeah, well, there is an issue. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, tomatoes and sweet corn aren't going to be much good either. No. <laughs> but then what can you do? we better get to some calls. Uh, our first one is uh, Liz out in uh, Mount Eliza. Good morning, Liz. Oh, good morning, panel, and thank you very much for your show. Absolutely love it every oh, good. weekend. Good. So I listen avidly. Um, I've got two questions, if I may. Sure. The first one is I've got two borders of pig base, mm. and I've got one um, border, quite long borders, up the left-hand side of my garden um, on rocks and one on the right-hand side of my garden. The left-hand side is riddled with what looks like a fungi-type... Um, it's a little white speck mm. all through it. The right-hand side's fine. Are they the um, same pig face on either yes, side? Yes, in mm. fact, I've picked bits and pieces... Um, from the right hand to get to the left hand. So it's all the one from the one strain, if you like. Yeah. Mm. What um, and I don't know whether I should um, rip it all out or wait until maybe the sun... Yeah, look, I, that was going to be my suggestion. I think you'll find if, you, if it's a fungal thing... I mean, there's oodles of fungal things around at it the moment. killing, just, starting to kill it. Yeah, well, you can't change the weather, though. So no. I, I think, you know, if it's got bad fungal issues, it will probably outgrow them once the weather does settle down and get warm. Oh, um, good. So, so I, I wouldn't rip it out at this point in time. Question, okay, just Stephen. be careful with mm. the, with the um, when I cut it and trim it, just to make sure I don't spread it to the other side. Yes, well, it can do that by its own, of course, because most fungal things spread by spores, so yeah. it could blow in the wind anyway. So, yeah. But I wonder if it's really bad on one side that's not on the other. It would suggest to me that there is different conditions on mm. one side than what there is in the other. And there is, is it more shady? Or yeah, more shade, yeah, more shady. Yeah, yeah and, and possibly poorer drainage, um, right. uh, less air circulation. I mean, all those things can come into, in fact, what will cause a fungal infection. So yeah. it would seem to me that the side where it's getting the fungal problems is probably not really conducive to the pig face growing well okay. to start with. So it's, okay. it started off not being as vigorous as your pig face on the other side for yeah. whatever those reasons are, light or whatever else. And, of course, a plant that's not doing well is more inclined to cop fungi and, yeah, and other pest indeed. problems. So, you know, so it may even be long-term worthwhile considering whether you actually do, do away with the pig face on that side, although in other years when it's not as cool and damp as this, it might well not be an issue. Um, uh, but perhaps look at a different group of plants yeah. for that side yes, long-term. Right. Mm. But for right now, given we're coming into summer and I love all the flowers on it, yeah. what um, for right it? now just cut the, the dead bit out and just leave it. Yeah. And I'd also put the dead bit in the bin. Mm. Oh, oh, that I'm doing because I actually trimmed the bottom of it yesterday. Mm. What colour? Which which pig face is it? The pink one, right? Yes, because that does want dry. Mm. And I wonder if you change the pH on it would that help? Look, it might. uh, I mean, I don't like using fungicides unless I absolutely have to because people forget that fungicides also disrupt things in the garden because they're fairly general. Yeah, so you could try something like some. Proper full cream milk uh, diluted down and, and, and uh, watering canned over okay. the top of it. Uh, okay. It might help. Um, One to ten, water to milk. Mm. 
Okay. Well, opposite way. Not <laughs> yes. Yes, not one water, ten, ten milk. Ten parts yeah. water. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you could try something like that because it's reasonably benign and see if that helps a little bit. Okay. Um, but, um, yes, people forget that fungicides tend to be fairly general, so they, they tend to knock out the good fungi with the bad. So, mm. And because we don't see the evidence like you do if you kill bugs or you're killing mm. weeds with a weedicide, um, yeah. we think of fungicides as being fairly benign, but they're, they're not actually as benign as a lot of people think. Mm. Yes, yeah. Okay, all right, thank you for that. The next one is I've got a um, horrible old, oh, I don't know, I think it was the cherry one. But <laughs> I, I put it, I planted, I bought it at not a good place yeah. and, um, and let it go. And I think the rootstock's taken over. Yeah. Whatever, I'm getting it out. Yes. What's happened is it's... Um, it's popping up everywhere. Yes. Yeah, uh, and if it's a cherry... Um, it the, is a cherry, yeah, I think. They, the rootstocks they use for grafting cherries onto are inclined to sucker, and, uh, and it can be an issue to deal so with them. If I... So, and it's got a very small um, trunk. Mm-hmm. So if I saw that off, I've got to get rid of the roots. I've got to get rid of all these... You know, popping up yeah. roots. You better not to actually saw it off. You better to use it as a lever and get round and try and dig the basic part of the plant out. And then when you break through a root, then you need to follow that root down and try and, and dig it up as well. Uh, if you're going to do it physically, because if you just chop it off, even if you just chop the base of the stump out, you're leaving all those live roots everywhere, and they're all going to sucker. Mm. That's what I'm. That's my my worry. Now the mm. thing is, it's in the middle of my rose garden. Oh dear. Um, yeah, so. Um, all right, well, so there's only there's one nothing, way. I am very environmentally. Yeah. I'm very, very conscious of. I don't use sprays or anything. Yeah, well. But for this, should I use something? Yeah. I would poison I was, it. Yeah, I was going to say. Paint it with Roundup. Yeah. Well, go Next. one better. You actually mm. drill holes after you've chopped it mm. into, into the remaining trunk bit. Yeah. And and you pour your poison down into those drilled holes, so mm. it's not going anywhere except down into the. Yeah. And be careful roots. with Roundup around roses. Don't. Yeah, that's don't spray. That. Don't that's, spray that's at my all. Name worry. Yeah, yeah. So, but if you cut it off and poison the stump, and do it as soon as you cut, because the other thing that is important. Uh, with this whole process is when you cut a, a tree down, it releases tension and it will actually suck the poison down through the plant. Yep. If you cut it down, go and have a cup of tea, make dinner, get organised, and then three hours later come back and put the poison on, it will be a fraction of as, as effective as oh, it would okay. be if you put it down immediately. Yep. Okay. So, oh, and you're, you're using it in a very controlled way, and it's probably one of the few ways I would still use something like Roundup, because I know I've got complete control over where it's going. It's not being sprayed. It's not being sort of okay. distributed around. It's the very targeted. Yes. Okay. And that's so the only way you're going to get rid of the, the cherry tree, other than removing suckers for the next ten years. Mm. Oh no, no. And the, the the problem is they're actually coming up through our. Decking, they're coming up. Yeah, 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 you need to get on. Yeah, it. you're going to have. Yeah. I, I, I really see no other way around it. I think you're okay. going to have to poison the stump. Thank you so much, Stephen and Virginia and Pam. Okay, it's a pleasure. And um, we'll miss your show in January. I won't know what to do. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sleep. Yeah, yeah I have to <laughs> say, just are. in passing, I suppose this is PRing another station. It looks like I'll be doing most of the summer programs on a Saturday morning on the ABC. Oh, good. I'll be on next Saturday morning, I know, but there's new producers. There's going to be a new um, compare next uh, next season. So Hilary Harper's moved on to the um, Radio National National program. And so Libby Gore is taking over. uh, Oh, oh, excellent. 
Excellent. I believe I've got a gig for next year as well, so I'll be doing the turnabout with uh, Carolyn Blackman, uh, but I've put my hand up to do the Saturdays through the Christmas New Year, and I certainly know I'll be in next Saturday, but the new producer's still finding his feet, so he hasn't sort of worked out exactly what he's doing yet, but there's a good chance I'll be going in most Saturdays over the, over the Christmas break. Oh, well, there you go. That's so you, w- you won't completely get rid of me. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, good on you, Liz. Bye. Bye-bye. Right, uh, next up we're going down to Phillip Island. Good morning, Robert. Oh, hi. How are you all? We're well, thank you. Uh, yeah, we've had a little bit of rain down here. Oh, good. Yeah, time to time and uh, things are still nice and green. It is um, lovely, isn't it, to get to Christmas and everything and still, still looks green. green. Yes. Yes, yes. We um, uh, the only disappointment so far, just across the road from us, is beautiful old gum tree, and there's a group of owls come, and people stand under the tree about eleven o'clock at night, and you can hear them all calling each other. Absolutely beautiful, like like an owl orchestra. Right. <laughs> so, so we're hoping they show up again. They, oh they, yes. Yes, they're beautiful things. And, uh, yeah, no, everything's growing well down here. Um, had a good year with the, the flower garden. Good, good. Had some problems with um, rust getting on on some of their flowers. So these days we tend to pull them out rather than try and stop it. Yeah. yeah. So just, now you look, should have I've, seen my broad beans this year. Oh, I what heard a disaster. It on the radio. Yeah, 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 they were just absolutely covered in rust, and I thought, well, so be it. That's just right. didn't, didn't get many broad beans this year. No, no. Others said, look, I, I think I've got a major problem. Tomatoes mm. uh, a little, we're finding a little slow. Yeah, well, everybody now, is, yep. Oh, that's good. That's cheered me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's better if everybody's suffering from the same thing, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> now, I went out yesterday, uh, a row of tomatoes, and one's got not, not a light yellow, but a stink. A distinct darkish yellow over the leaves. Is that a serious problem with tomatoes? A re- real sort of vivid uh, type of yellow. It doesn't sound good. No, I'd pull it out. Yeah, pull it, pull yeah. it out. Yeah. I think that's the best way Before to go. Before it spreads to the others. Yeah, it could be some sort of uh, viral thing uh, or a fungal disease. Um, particularly yeah. in this weather. Yeah. And so, yeah, look, I think we've just got to sort of hunker down this year when it comes to some of the sun and heat-loving vegetables and just accept the fact that things are going to go a bit awry. Mm. And you, if they're in flower now, would you still believe you'll get fruit by the by around March, April? Or? Uh, look, if they've got bad yellowing in the foliage, probably not. Probably not, mm. no. But you will. I mean, if we have an autumn like last autumn, I... Last autumn was a shocker. It was extremely hot and yeah, it was yeah. dry, 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 dry. Yes, it went on forever. So the tomatoes ripened. So mm. I wouldn't worry about... I mean, I've got flowers and my tomatoes and I'm assuming they're going to fruit mm. because we might yeah. get that really hot autumn again. Yeah, Because yes. it rained last year right into January. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right too. We... we Happened to have had my wife's grown some magnificent linaria this year, and they were nearly uh, two and a half foot high, mm-hmm. but about a foot wide, and magnificent colours. And they're very strong things mm. too. They're worth, well worth growing. Lovely. Had, yes, yes, and they don't seem to get the diseases some of the other uh, 
we've got some hollyhocks here. Oh, that yeah, hollyhocks will c- come down to rust as soon yes. as you look at them, unfortunately, because yeah. I adore hollyhocks. Yes, they, you know. but they they almost grow wild down at Point Lonsdale. Mm. You know, it's, yeah, it's beautiful sandy mm. and the yeah. water's not retained. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so pull this tomato out. Yeah, yeah look, yes, if you've got I a really would. bad one, I'd pull it out, and the rest of them just sit and wait and see what happens. Virginia's yes. right. If we get a, a, a late autumn, I have to say, you know, we went away towards the end of autumn thinking everything was going to be all right and I got back and all my tree ferns were burnt because they mm, just dried yeah. right out. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, at that time of the year you wouldn't expect that sort of thing to have happened. No, so I spent no, days no, watering the tree fern trunks just trying to get moisture back into them well, again. Well, I, I, I got to the end of my water last mm. year and, and it was autumn. Mm. I, you know, all my tanks just dried up. So everything else is going... I lost quite a few daffodil bulbs uh, this year. I, I don't think I had them planted deep enough. Mm. Oh, okay. Sometimes they they wear their way up too. I don't know why. They seem to do both. They go both deeper and shallower. Yeah, Yeah, they 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 do. do. Yes, I've got some daffs that I must deal with that have pushed themselves up out of the ground. They're they're almost sitting there like a batch of nerines now. So that that could be an issue. Yes, this year I'm going to, some of the ones I've planted, I'm going to put some two or three inches of soil over top of them. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good idea. Maybe it's getting a bit too hot. And also them. remember not to water where they are over the summer if you get to watering. Oh, thanks very much for everything. Great to hear everybody and I hope you all have a great, happy time. Well, Thank you, you too, Robert. Robert. Thanks okay. very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. bye. Yes, we complain about one thing and we're happy about another. I know, I know. For the same reasons, which is really (laughs) weird. (laughs) We're never satisfied, are we? No. Okay, we're going next to um, our very good friend, Alex, down in Upper Beaconsfield. Good morning, Alex. Oh, good morning, Pam and everyone. I think that volunteers like you make the world better, you know. (laughs) We like to think we do. It it keeps us out of mischief, Alex. Well, encouraging people to... Uh, grow vegetables and fruit and things like that as well as display plants is good and I think that you uh, you probably don't regard yourself as psychologists but the advice you give <laughs> to people with plant problems definitely puts you in that category. Oh dear, that's a bit so, of a worry actually, I'm not sure I'm qualified. Oh <laughs> uh, well, you you still have an answer for everything. So <laughs> yeah. so true. Yeah, well, that's true I suppose, yes. And I reckon that if anyone complains about you not being there in January, give them my number and I'll just tell them that uh, you're there 48 weeks of the year and you have a <laughs> range of presenters, so uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful. But uh, among your presenters, you've got AB. Yes. And this year she's published, just recently, she's published her book, Habitat. Mm-hmm. Well, I reckon it's an absolute highlight. It's superbly written. It's beautifully presented. And what I like about her writing is that there's no formulas. She's not just telling people what they should do to create habitat, but she's giving them, you know, like, you must do this or you must do that. She's just filled it with lots of ideas, and it's interspersed with the examples of people who've actually got different sorts of gardens for habitats, and... 3CR presenters get a pretty good rap too with uh, Chloe Foster gets a good mention for the contribution she made to her chapter on soils 
and that grand old lady Gwen Elliott. Yes. <laughs> yeah, enough of the old. <laughs> well, she published it more than 30 years ago on plants for small gardens, and that gets a mention too. Yeah. Yeah. And it encourages people to share their cherries with the king parrots and enjoy the mm. king parrots. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So uh, I think it's an absolute achievement and it's it's not a coffee table book. It's the sort of book you think, wow, I've got to read this and keep going. Mm. It's it's there's just so much information in that book, isn't there? It's 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 just dense, really dense with information and all and of it is is wonderful ideas. And Alex Suhu is one of too, our our other presenters. She was given it for Christmas, and I have never seen anybody so happy with a Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> she just thought it was wonderful. Yeah, good. Yeah, that is good, isn't it? And and she, I only see Australian plants, but she's broader than that. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's like Virginia. She intersperses different things. Where she lives, of course, she's got to have only Australian. That's right. But she's got a few in pots too, a few exotic plants. Mm. But, uh, yes, I, I, it's really a highlight for me this year, so I thought it was worth a mention. Oh, well done, Alex. That's great. And, and thanks again for all your help through the year, and I look forward to catching up with you in February. Wonderful, and you have a great Christmas, Alex. I'll try. Good on Bye. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Whoops. Okay, next up, let me see. We're up to uh, Laura out in North Melbourne. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. I'd like to make a comment about the Roundup first. Mm -hmm. Sure. I found that if I went to the chemist and got a syringe, no needle, I could get the Roundup in the holes very easily. Yes. Yes. That's actually quite a good Good comment. idea. Yeah. Yes. yes, I've used syringes for that sort of thing. Uh, and also if I've got um, issues with borers in yes. trees, yes. I get natural turpentine yes. and, and syringe squir- it in. And su- squirt it in with the syringe mm. and the borers come leaping out of the holes. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's actually very, very successful with that. But you do have to make sure it's natural terps and not mineral. Yes. Because yes. it could have an awful impact on the plant. Uh, but, yeah, a syringe is actually quite a useful thing to have around. It is. Uh, um, I, yes. I find them quite handy for all sorts of little sort of fiddly jobs that you'd otherwise end up with stuff everywhere. Mm. Now, going back to the t- my tomato with the yellow leaves two weeks ago, mm. I gave it a big dose of Epsom salts mm. and it looked be- it went green. When it started to think about going yellow again, I gave it a smaller dose, (laughs) and it's nice and green. Okay. Well done. So I'm still hanging on. I've already got some red tomatoes. Oh, well done. I'm only just starting to get an odd flower. (laughs) (laughs) But then I'm at Macedon too, which which is a disadvantage if you want to grow good tomatoes, I have to say. Well, I've got a very hot little courtyard. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was all. I just wanted to report that the Epsom salts really did work. Excellent. That's great to know. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. And uh, let me see. We're going next to uh, Sharon in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Oh, good morning. Uh, Look, I just noticed on my coastal banks here, uh, it's got like a growth on it, and I noticed several other trees have got it too, also coastal banks here. It looks like a... Little tiny cauliflower. Have you got any ideas? 
without seeing it, I'd be guessing a wee bit. I mean, it could be a thing called a fasciation. Um, lots of plants get fasciations where they they get this strange, congested, weird growth on them. I've got, in fact, I posted a picture on Facebook recently of one of my acanthuses in my garden at home has sent up a fasciated flower spike, and it's sort of got this weird sort of almost coral-like effect instead mm. of the upright spike that you expect on an acanthus. Um, and... It's just a weird, wacky thing that happens and then doesn't again. It's not something that is a diseasey thing that you've got a, an issue with. Uh, fasciation just seems to be a muddling up of the chromosomes or the genes or some damn thing. And so the plant throws something that's a bit out of the ordinary, but it's not necessarily something to worry about. So it may be some fasciated growth that's coming out on the banks here, but without seeing it, I wouldn't be dead sure what it no. is, to be honest. No, I, I appreciate that. Mm. Well, thank you. I hope you're right. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly nothing to worry too much about. And look, they're a pretty tough plant, the old banksia. Um, if it is some sort of diseasey thing, it's probably going to shuck it off in due course anyway. You know, they're, they're pretty tough. So I, I wouldn't be too worried about it. I just keep a watching brief uh, and see how it develops. Uh, and if it gets seriously worse for some reason or other, then we may have to get you to send us a photo or something at some stage and see if we can't pin down what's going on. But it's certainly not something I've noticed before. So it may just be a fasciation. Thank you, Stephen, very much. That's a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Ah, Stephen, let's let's get to one more plant before our next call comes through. All right. Uh, um, society garlic. Everybody knows Talbagia. Everybody grows Talbagia. Um, and there's a few cultivars lurking around at the moment. Um, and I just bought in the white one, uh, which is Talbagia violacea alba, which is a bit <laughs> of horticultural sort of uh, mix and matching. Uh, but it's a white version of the classic old mauve Talbagia. I just like it because it's a little different. I think they're beautiful. Yeah, I love Talbagias. I remember reading years ago in a book on South African bulbous plants where the author was waxing lyrical about their species, gladdies and all sorts of other things, and they give a small mention to Talbagias and say they're really hard and tough and it's just a shame they don't have showier flowers. And ah. <laughs> I was slightly offended because I thought they're rather pretty. Yeah, um, I, I, I think they're absolutely lovely. But yeah, and they ma- flower forever. forever. And a mass planting is so showy. Yeah, it is. I think they're great plants. So the white one seems to me to have a slightly larger individual flower than the classic mauve Mm. with a slightly longer petal Uh, but I don't think it's a hybrid or anything I think it's just a white selection Um, and of course they get lovely long stems so they're really nice if you need something for picking for a a posy for the table or for me the rabbits adore them yeah now that's interesting that you have rabbit issues with Talbagia because you're one of the few people I know that that seems to be an issue with I've got them all over the garden and Mm. I've noticed some of them are actually I've actually got a flower on one of them which is very exciting (laughs) and it's I have. I also have Russian garlic all over mm. the garden, and they don't touch yeah. that. Yeah, isn't they that interesting? Touch that, yeah, but they love crazy. the Talbagia. It is weird. It mm. is truly weird. So anyhow, so Talbagia violacea elba, tough as they come, unless you have rabbits. Uh, and maybe and it's only several rabbits. Yeah, maybe it's only several rabbits. Yes, I don't know, because uh, I've never heard of anybody having an issue with Talbagias and rabbits other than you, Virginia. So you have a unique condition <laughs> in your garden. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a very pretty plant, and uh, they do make lovely border plants or just a clump in the edge of a, uh, a perennial border or something. Mm. Uh, and this strappy foliage is good, and they are sort of vaguely edible if you feel the need. Um, but, you know, if I'm going to have garlic, I want garlic. I mean, yeah, I, have I, real I garlic. <laughs> I can't quite see the point in Talbagia other than uh, if you know you can eat it. Well, I suppose that's just 
added information about a plant, but it's amazing how many people will buy things because it's edible, even though it's tenuously edible. Uh, but that seems to be one of the things in gardening now that people are actually collecting weird and wonderful edible plants. I suspect it's quite a good companion plant for roses too. It probably would oh, be. Probably yeah, would anything be, yes. in that sort of oniony, garlicky mm. group right. uh, generally is. Mm. Um, and of course they're dry tolerant and uh, they don't care if it gets really hot and... Mm. Uh, some of them will die down with the frost in the winter a bit uh, if you're in a really frosty area, but they'll bounce back that, again. Mm. You know, so really tolerant plants, mm. really. Mm. So that's the white form of society garlic, Tolbagia violacea elba. Terrific. Okay, let's go next to Wendy out in Reservoir. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning. Um, love your show. Thank you. Looking forward to when you come back next year. Um, now, what I'm calling about, I have um, a major invasion problem. Mm. Um from uh, some trees, I've only, I've been cutting them down for about oh, 10 years or so now and they keep growing back and I found out they grow some suckers from a neighbour's yard and I recently found out they're ash. Oh, yeah. oh, right. So I've cut them down for many years, um, not realising they were shooting from underneath. Some are up as high as a couple of metres mm. and there's suckers. Um, so I had planned, I listened to what you said before about drilling holes in them. Mm. Yep. And I was going to use, somebody suggested um, a poison that you use for blackberry. Yeah, um, yes, blackberry yes, so that works well as well. Yeah. The yes. issue, of course, is that there's very good chance you'll kill the main tree. Which is in the neighbour's property. Yeah. Well, actually, it's around the whole neighbourhood. Mm. The yeah. complex, I mean, I live in an area of maybe six blocks or so, and walking around, it's, they've just sprung up wild so everywhere. So you don't, you don't know where the original parent well, plant I suspect, is? I suspect it came from a neighbour diagonally, diagonally um, from my backyard, mm-hmm. and um, it was actually the main tree was chopped down several years ago. Oh, well, fire away with the Roundup. Yeah, Ooh. I think that's, that's the way so to go. So Roundup rather than the blackberry poison? Oh, no, no, the no, blackberry. no, blackberry. Yeah, the blackberry will work quite well. It'll I mean, you well. could go either way, but, yeah, yeah. cut and paint immediately um, yeah. and do it while the tree's in active growth because, of course, it's also got an yes, active sap flow. Yes, that's fascinating what you said yeah. earlier, yes. Yeah, so, and, and, and that way, hopefully... Well, the issue you've got, of course, if it's suffering from a, an old root system, uh, it could still keep coming into your place from neighbours who don't deal with it. Um, yes. So unless everybody gets together and, and actually deals with this ash, right. uh, you could still keep getting some coming in. But you'll have a much bigger impact on it and it won't be one of those tediously I've got to do every year jobs. Mm. Yes. And, and just before you go, the other problem I've got is couch grass. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, put and I wanted to make my back right, yeah. lawn area... Um, I just want to make little garden beds and vegetable beds and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's several options um, where you cover it up. Is yep. it, um, if you put some black plastic or something over it, you'll have to leave it there for at least two years. Oh, right. To have a real impact on the cooch because it'll live underneath the plastic for at least two years. Yes. Uh, and you'll have to make sure that the plastic goes from wall to wall. Uh, and again, you'll always have the issues that if your neighbours have got it in their garden, it's going to keep coming back towards you. Uh-huh. So you'd still have to deal with it um, coming in from the outskirts of your garden in due course. Uh, so it is a long-term project to kill cooch in a physical way. Uh-huh. Um, I mean... <laughs> 
digging it out is hard work, but generally speaking, the better alternative. Um, and what you do is you start in one corner and you just dig down to a depth where you can find no more rhizomes and you just dig the rhizomes up and take them out and you sieve the soil through and make sure you've got them all and you just keep working your way in little dribs and drabs right across your garden. Um, and it'll still come in from the neighbours. And it will you... still come in, yes. <laughs> unless you put in a barrier. Yeah, so so you will have an ongoing issue with cooch. Once you've got it, it's always going to be a potential issue. But mm. unless your soil is really sandy and loose, it doesn't go all that terribly deep. If you've got a clay soil, you'll find most clay. Yeah, Compressed well, you'll find clay. most of your cooch roots and rhizomes and things will be in the in the top two to three inches. So it won't go down right. too badly. I've yeah, got okay. it, and I find it impossible to get rid of. I've <sighs> just learnt to live with it. Mm. Uh, uh. I mean, it's just it it it's. It's a warm weather grass and it doors being around. Mm. And you, yes. And, you know, the advantage <laughs> is it is a warm weather grass. Yeah, so it can make a decent lawn, but, yeah, it but doesn't stay in the lawn. No. Yeah. Oh, you've given me um, lots of things to think about. I think the digging is probably the way to go at this stage. So I, look, I think so. I mean, smothering is just such a slow and long, tedious process yes. and you have to put up with looking out on a garden full of black plastic for the next two years uh, no. and possibly more. Um, I didn't realise it took so long. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. It, it, it's resilient like you wouldn't believe. And you can't leave the plastic there because plastic's not good for the soil. Yeah, so, you know, mm. at some stage the plastic's got to go. Mm. Yeah. Yep, OK, I'll try that. Thanks again. Um, I've got enough to keep me busy for the next... Yeah, yeah, yeah. report in in the autumn and let us know how you're getting on. Will do, will do. Thanks again. Okay, bye. Bye. Yes, I've got a bit of cooch that's escaped out of my tiny little lawn at home in one of the borders. And it's grown right through a mat-forming perennial, so I'm going to have to take everything out. Do you ever use the herbicide that only kills grasses? I haven't for a long time. I have used it many years ago, Mm -hmm. Um, and that is an option, of course, with some of those sorts of things, is to use... Uh, uh, a poison that only kills the monocots and not the dicots Mm. but you've got to be careful because if you've got bulbs in the garden or anything else that is also strappy leafed those poisons will kill those plants so it's only the broadleaf plants that they don't kill so yes so if you've got sort of species gladiolis or daffodils or anything else in the garden and you happen to get it on their foliage They'll go out with it as well. So you've still got to be fairly careful Mm. using those poisons. Uh, And I'm not quite sure how resilient they are in the ground and all that sort of stuff too, so I'm a little nervous about putting them down. And it's also very expensive. Yes, yes. So there is that side. I I sort of figure digging out the perennial, getting rid of the cooch grass and digging the ground over and reinstating some new plants is probably cheaper and and a better option in the long run. Yes, Mm. fair enough. Yep. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So if you'd like to uh, jump on the phones and give us a call, the number is 94190155 to speak to Stephen or Virginia. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Rosemary on the outside line, the number is 94198377. Next up, we have our good friend John out at Melton. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. Hi, John. Hi. Yeah, hello, Virginia. <laughs> We're all here this morning. How are you, John? Good, thank you. I, I just wanted to say that um, Stephen Ryan is blooming in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, dear. Yes, well. Been, we've never grown a dahlia before, but he, he wasn't too good in a, in a pot, and um, I painted him in the ground. He's gone to a metre wide and about a metre tall. And oh, great. All over it, I'm so, a great uh, dahlia. 
<laughs> so um, I just really wondered, though, whether uh, it should be lifted in winter or whether I just leave it there. Well, leave it. I'd leave it. Uh, they, I mean, eventually it's going to get to be a huge big clump, and if that's an issue, well, then you could lift it and divide it later And give up. some to me. And <laughs> Hold on a second. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I should be free. Um, and um, But... You can leave, as long as the ground is reasonably well drained, you can leave them in the ground for years before you have to deal with them. And if you've got lots of stems coming up from the base, you're not growing it as a show bench flower, so you're growing it as a garden flower. And if you've got lots of stems, you're going to have lots of flowers, and they'll all help support each other as well, so you won't have to do a lot of staking or anything. And yeah, so I just leave the day you're in the ground. And for people who don't know it, it's a single, simple, virginal, white, self-supported, slightly scented day, yeah? Yeah, with a big yellow centre. With a big yellow centre, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Just sounds like me, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, no, it, it's doing really. It's in a little cottage garden that's only two metres by about three metres. Yeah, so it's not and in a big garden. There's a whole there. lot of um, other plant trust things that I, I got at the auction this year. So maybe <laughs> uh, I'll well, just watch it, my day. It doesn't. to the yeah. plant trust auction next year. Yeah, well, you might be able to do that. That's a thought. <laughs> uh, but just make sure I don't swamp everything else in the border. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the only issue you might have. Uh, sort of fun all having right. a plant named after you. You can you use all sorts of weird double entendres that you'd never be able to use otherwise. <laughs> and, and let me say what a wonderful and great job you've done throughout the year, and um, it's all been ad-free as well. Oh, yes. good. Oh, there is that side of it too, yes. <laughs> okay, thanks, John. Yeah, Thank have you. a good Christmas, right, John. Good Christmas, we'll catch Christmas, up right. soon. Yep. Okay, bye. Bye. Oh, dear. Next up we have uh, Ruth in SQ. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. Um, like everything else in the garden, after all the rain, we have lots and lots of rhubarb. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, because I do use the rhubarb leaves in making an insecticide, um, can I put excess rhubarb leaves in my compost? Yes, yes. absolutely. Just, just throw them in the compost. Uh, although there's toxins in rhubarb, it's not toxic to the bacteria and worms and other things that work in your compost tea. Okay. So, yeah, um, I mean, I've got a whole bed full of rhubarb at home and I don't make chemicals with it or anything like that or sprays with it. Uh, they just all go straight into my compost heap. Uh, it collapses and rots down exceedingly quickly. So you're just turning it into good usable compost. Yeah, well, I put some in, but I just wasn't sure. We've got cuckoo spit in a tree and I use a bit of rhubarb leaves, yeah. soap mm. and garlic and chilli and scares the cuckoo's bit away. <laughs> yeah, well, they might taste good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they leave. Mm. They don't like it. Yes, I've been making quite a lot of rhubarb because it's just growing so well. Oh, mm. It's loving the year. And mm. I'm going to put some in my summer pudding, I decided. I usually just use berries, but I'm going to put some rhubarb in my summer pudding this year. Good. Very good idea. I, I just cook a great batch of it every so often, and I have it in takeaway food containers frozen in the freezer. Mm. And so I pull it out and use the rhubarb for, on the cereal in the morning, that mm. sort of thing. I just love it. So. Yeah. And rhubarb pie is lovely too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, and we have a friend who makes a seriously good rhubarb cake oh. as well. Don't <laughs> we? Yeah, we do. do we, we do, do, yes. Which she brings with her to every event that Plant Trust has. Which All is right. We always have rhubarb cake and it's yeah. excellent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Okay. That's a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Stephen, um, I should mention to you, and I mentioned for a very good reason, which I'm sure you'll cotton on to, but... 
during the week, I was watching a program that came up. Um, it was actually David Attenborough. Oh, yes. But he was looking at the plight of silky safakas mm. in Madagascar. Yeah. And um, they've been so endangered. Their numbers have been right, mm. right down because of all the illegal um, timber clearing. Oh. In it's, the forest. They've lost 20% of a major forest area in northwest mm. Madagascar in a year. Mm. Oh, no. Uh, they were particularly mm. clearing rosewood yeah. because they discovered when they traced it all back that it was being used as fretboards in guitars. Mm. So um, companies like um, Gibson Guitar, you know, over in the in the United States, didn't even realise that the wood they were using yeah, was from threatened forests. Was from threatened yeah. forests in in Madagascar. Luckily, they've followed this whole thing through, and they've managed to virtually stop the clearing of rosewood yeah. now. Um, and they're working very mm. hard to try and build up the numbers of yeah. these silky safakas. They're trying to do all sorts of stuff there. The issue, of course, in Madagascar is their population is still growing um, and they're clearing land to grow things like peanuts to sell to China. And Which it's is just, just, it's just ridiculous. Awful. It's, you know, it's so short-sighted. Uh, and I know people have to make a living and it's really sad if people are struggling. Uh, but there's got to be ways and means of doing things for the local people that they're actually going to benefit from long-term instead of clearing their forests, growing peanuts and making some money out of them. Um, they should be growing some of their native yams and mm. things like that and, and growing a staple crop that they can actually eat from instead of trying to find cash crops that they can make money out of. Yep. Um, it's very sad. And, of yep. course, the, so much of their flora and fauna is under threat. Oh, um, gosh, yes. Part of the reason why I like going back on a regular basis is because I feel that if groups go in, we're spending money that is helping the local economy. And we're encouraging tourism. And we're showing people that we care about these animals because we're spending all that money to get them. And they should be valuing their whole environment and looking after it. Yeah, I mean, tourism is probably the, the, the potentially the best saving grace for Madagascar that there is. Mm. So if people visit the country, you spend big dollars going, uh, people benefit from it, the local guides benefit from it, the local villages can benefit from it, uh, the companies that do the touring from the Madagascan end, they benefit from it. Uh, and so there's a lot of uh, flow on from these things. Exactly. And the locals start to realise that they've got something that's of value. Mm. And that's the issue. I mean, you know, big deal. They've got silky safakas. Who cares? You know, they're a lovely, cute, fluffy white thing. But, you know, from the locals' point of view, um, they're just an animal that's mm. out in the wild. But from a tourist's point of view, like us going there, mm. um, they are incredible creatures. And, you know, and it's just unique. such an opportunity. Oh, we can't yeah. lose them. No, no. It's, it, it's one of the world's hotspots. And... It tends to be forgotten and ignored a lot by the outside world, except when there's a David Attenborough special comes up or whatever. And so people sort of forget about Madagascar. And the only time you ever hear about it is if there's been a cyclone or some major catastrophe Mm. in the country. The plague. Yeah, the plague. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was on last time I was there. Um, So, you know, it's uh, it's sad that this country isn't getting the sort of international... um, help and recognition that it needs and really the best thing that you can do long term is encourage the tourism industry Mm. and that's why I go back. Hence (laughs) uh, people should be aware that uh, I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it right now, is that I'll be off to Madagascar again in September next year Uh, we leave about mid-September and get back at the beginning of October Um, it's 21 days Um, if anybody has ever thought that it's a place they'd like to visit I would seriously consider jumping on to the ASA website straight away, have a look at the tour. Um, 
apart from your airfares to get there and back, basically everything is covered because all your meals, all your entry fees, your, your internal flights, all the other things that you have to do when you're in a country like Madagascar are all part of your cost. So really all you need is a bit of spending money for some alcohol and souvenirs, really, is about all you need. Um, and it is a trip of a lifetime. Oh, gosh. And uh, I might add too, you know, I'm doing Madagascar in, in September, but if people go on to my website, uh, they can find that I'm, I've got tours coming up for the next three years with with ASA um, and they have got a tour coming up next year that they need a few more people on that I'm not leading but the Northwest France one which Pam and I have both done and is just fantastic uh, there's still a couple short I believe uh, for the Northwest France one so for Normandy and the Loire Valley mm. so if you want to have a luxurious, decadent (laughs) holiday instead of an adventurous one with me in Madagascar, um, then do consider that one. Mm. Uh, So, And they've got tours going all over the place. I mean, next year I've got the Moroccan one, which is already booked out, and then Madagascar. The following year I'm doing Normandy and Brittany, uh, and then I'm doing Chile, uh, which I think will be fantastic. Uh, And the following year I'm doing Spain and then Madagascar again. So, So there's... You know, a whole range of different countries that I'll be going into. Um, and those who've travelled with me know that I do a lot of trying to make people have fun, <laughs> as well as trying to entertain you and teach you stuff. And, and we have great local guides and, you know, everything is done really, really well on these tours. So you not only have a lovely time, but you hopefully come back with all sorts of wonderful knowledge that you've acquired whilst you've been away. And accommodation is great. You're not having to pack up every day and move on because certainly you stay in the, in the same spot Yeah, for a few certainly days. in the things like the French tour, you yep. stay for a few days. Madagascar's a little more That's challenging. That's a little more, yeah. Yeah, because you do tend to move around. We only stay in the one spot two nights a couple of times, I think. We don't sort of stay on for days and days in one area. Well, you have to try to give to different parts of the island because yeah. they're, some, of the, some of the animals are only in one yeah. section of the island. And the geography is different in different parts totally. of the island and, uh, and the and tree it's, species. And it's much bigger than people realise. Oh, it's oh a huge yes, place. it is huge. Yeah. yeah, well, it's the world's fifth biggest island, I think. Mm. Uh, so it is. It's, a, it's pretty big. I mean, it's, you know, lengthwise, it's over a 1,000 miles long, mm. uh, and I think it is widest points about 300 or 350 miles wide in the old measurements, because I have never bothered to try and transfer it into kilometres, uh, but it is a biggish place, so, yes. and because the road systems aren't terribly crash hot, uh, it can be quite challenging to get from point A to point B, so uh, there can be a lot of excitement involved. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I definitely recommend the Madagascan tour this coming year, and keep in mind that, you know, things are getting more and more challenging there, uh, and Unless we can help them to help themselves, um, slowly but surely, things like the silky safakas and other wonderful lemurs will disappear. They'll be gone. And it's really sad. I mean, there's one forest we go into where they've got two uh, giant bamboo lemurs. No, golden bamboo lemurs left. There's only two individual animals in this forest, and it's a father and daughter. Oh, no. So it's at the end of the line. Uh, I mean, there are golden bamboo lemurs in other parts of Madagascar, uh, so it's not the last of them. Uh, But part of the problem is in some of the other parts of the the country, the lemurs have been uh, habituated to eating non-bamboo. So if you bring them back into that park, they'll starve. So oh. even trying to transfer new yes. animals back into this area is is basically oh, impossible. Dear. So you know, last year we saw them, father and daughter. Uh, they they quite used to people being around, so they were quite low down in a tree, and you could see them. But you're looking at the two last creatures of their kind in that area, oh, dear. and it's awfully sad. It is. It is awfully sad. But you know, if we help by going into these places and and showing them how much we appreciate their wonderful flora and fauna, 
you know, hopefully we have an impact, mm. which would be good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So there you go. So yes, yeah, so consider a nice tour next year. You know, come with me somewhere. Give it to someone as a Christmas present. What a good idea. I wish I had somebody that gave me a wonderful overseas <laughs> trip for a Christmas present. Oh, dear. Yeah, so there you go. All right. Now, what okay. are we going to do? Well, first of all, I'm going to give out the phones Good. because um, it's 20 to 9 already. Um, by the time we get to quarter past nine, that'll be the end of us for another five weeks. So yep. uh, if you've got a gardening question, do jump on the phones now. The number to speak to Stephen and Virginia, 94190155, or to chat with Rosemary on the outside line, 94198377. Now, I have a question for you, Stephen. Uh-oh, yes, right. Do you grow... Without s- notice? Skidox- <laughs> yes, without notice, Scadoxus in your garden. No, I've tried Scadoxus and I find it's too cold sensitive. So uh, uh, the only way I can grow them is to keep them in the greenhouse for the winter. So if I put them in a pot and I was babysitting one for a friend of mine who'd sold her house and was moving on and all that sort of thing, in the greenhouse it survived all right. I mean, it's not a heated greenhouse or anything like that, but it just kept the cold off. But a couple of times I've tried planting them out in the ground and even in a nice sheltered little corner where you think Scadoxus might actually do all right, they just rot out. Right. So, yes, yeah, so I've given up on Scadoxus. I can grow quite a number of the other amaryllids. Um, I do very well with hemanthuses. I've got three different species of those doing well in the garden. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got quite a few other types of amaryllids that I grow, the Noreen, um, Belladonna hybrids, all those sorts of things. But no, Scadoxus are beyond me, unfortunately. Because I've got a couple of beauties that are in a pot and mm. I have always assumed I'd be safe, but this year I had frost like I haven't had before. Yeah, it has been a bad spring uh, I, for frost. I, I've lost things that I've have never mm. been threatened before. Yeah, because yeah, you're up on that hill where it yes, should sort of... Yes, because usually it rolls off. Yeah, it rolls mm. off, but it didn't this year. No. So did your Scadoxus get hit? No, the Scadoxus is still in a pot. Yeah. But um, other things really mm. did. Heliotropes, all my heliotropes, every mm. single one was yeah. hit. Some of them have come back, yeah. some mm. of them haven't. Yeah. Yes, it has been a, a quite challenging spring from that perspective. I've certainly, I have now come to the conclusion that Plectranthus aren't from Aceton, no, even yes. though I've got through a few years with them. Mm. But, you know, things like Eclonii, one in three years I get flowers. The rest of the time, the frost comes in just as they're coming into bud. And they're so big, there's no point in having them if they're not going to. No, because they take up a lot of space. Mm. Uh, and I had quite a number of different species of Plectranthuses doing sort of reasonably well for the year, over the years, and they were really useful in the sort of shady garden I've got. But this year, they were virtually wiped off the face of my garden. See, mine, my Plectranthus are all really under trees, mm. and I find that's enough to Yeah, to well, it wasn't them. enough to save mine. Mm. I have to say, my Eclonii eyes were, would have been in what I would have called the most sheltered spot in my whole garden and they still got knocked virtually right out there's the odd little bit of it that started to come off 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 the roots now uh, rather too late to really be of any use anyway so I've thought I'm just going to clean those beds out and I'm going to start looking at other plant material Mm. because the plectranthuses just aren't really hardy enough for Macedon so um, yeah and certainly I'm not going to replace them with Scadoxus (laughs) 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 that would be foolish oh dear oh well Okay, goodness me, the uh, the board has lit up again. We'll go first up to Ken out in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. I just rang up and I, I listened to a gardening program, which is I'd say it's one of the best in it's the best in Australia. And um, I just like to wish you people all a wonderful Christmas, and we need a happy New Year, don't we? <laughs> oh, we, we do. do. Mm. We and definitely you, do. You, the, the job that you do. 
the whole lot of you is absolutely fantastic, and I'd like to thank you very much. And, oh, good um, on you, Ken. Uh, that's all I want to do. See, I know everybody because I listen to you people. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, you do realise that could mean that we're actually talking ourselves out of a job? <laughs> no, 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 you can't. Never do that. Never, uh, never tell us everything. No. Yeah, all right, all right. Keep okay, something we'll hold back. a bit back. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, anyway. you have a lovely se- um, Christmas season and we'll catch up with you again in the new year. Oh, you certainly will, and thanks very much for everything. Good that's on you, Ken. Bye. Bye. Okay, uh, let's go to another plant right. while uh, our next call's coming through. All right, uh, I've bought in a Berberus. Uh, don't often bring in Berberuses for one reason or another, but I like them as shrubs. I think they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah I, they're I hardy think... shrubs. Uh, there's a whole range of them, and believe it or not, there's a whole bigger range of them now because the whole genus of Mahonia has been sunk in with Berberus. Oh, really? Oh, God, yes. Uh, so, you know, at least that's what Q is saying in England, so I guess, you know... They're one of the world's authorities. So it was one of those things I thought was going to happen in due course yeah, because yeah. the flowers of Berberus and the flowers of Mahonia are identical. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. only difference is Mahonias have compound leaves and Berberuses tend to have uh, simple leaves. They've got spikes. And they've got spikes, but the Berberus have got stem spikes and the Mahonias have leaf spikes. Yeah, so... So they're, they're, <laughs> they're the only main differences, but apparently genetically they are basically the Okay. Same. So anyhow, that aside, this particular Berberus is one called Helmand Pillar. And it's a unique shrub in lots of ways because it, it's very narrow. So you have this upright, narrow, pencil-like plant, which can be very useful as an exclamation mark or at the end of a, uh, a bed or on either side of a path to give sort of a framing effect or in between windows where you want something narrow. So it has lots of applications. Uh, and it's one of the few smallish growing shrubs that I can think of that has a pencil form and purple foliage. Yes. Mm. Yep. You know, so it's quite unique, really. Uh, it is deciduous, so it will drop its leaves in the winter, and the leaves will often go quite a pretty shade of red before they drop. Its mm. foliage during the summer is burgundy. It will get tiny little yellow flowers on it and then the odd little red berry, but it's not really grown for either of those things. It's really about its shape and its colour. So you know, I've got one in the garden at home that would be two to two and a half metres tall now and the only drawback with it is it's not actually really firm so bits will tend to flop out so I just use little bits of fishing line and I go around and I tie everything back in and so my plant would only be 20 centimetres wide and two and a half metres tall tall. and it's just this amazing purple pencil. Craig has got some lovely ones in his garden Mm. in Olinda and they are, they're beautiful. I've got a few. They're younger than yours. Yeah. They're not yet. In, but I do find some of my berberus in the hard bits of the garden don't do as well. Yeah, look, I think they, they're tough, but they enjoy a slightly richer life. So if you can give them a little bit of extra watering and a bit of good soil, um, they tend to flourish quite well. And, I mean, it's a big genus. In fact, it's one of those genera that the taxonomists run like mad when somebody says which one's this mm. because there's so many berberuses and they're also promiscuous so there's a lot of hybridity that goes on in them um, uh, although funnily enough they rarely cross between their Mahonia group that is now berberus uh, as far as I know that's only ever happened once and there is one a plant out there that was for a long time sold as Mahono berberus which is probably now just berberus <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes Helmut Pillar is a really interesting berberus I believe there are other selections of pencil form berberus now available in Europe but as far as I know it's the only one that's come out here and uh, it is very pencil oh it, it is, is very narrow, narrow. Yeah. 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 so you can really sort of get it in 
into a spot where you want some height, but you mm. don't want anything that billows out. They do get little spikes on them, but they're not particularly vicious. Um, I mean, if you back into it while you're weeding, you might go ouch. Uh, but at least the spikes are straight. So if they go in, they're going to come they're straight out come again. Out. Yep. Unlike rose thorns that tend to go oh. in and stay there. Yes. Uh, and I, then I, fester I, and do nasty things to Yes, you. I got a rose stuck in. I was pulling out something, a, a shrub, a, a dahlia. Not a dahlia. A Daphne. Oh, yeah. The other day, and it's it's suckered, so it's really spread. And oh boy, did I get into the, the rose get me as I was doing. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, they, they seem to leap out at you. But um, I remember you telling me that some berberus are stronger in in hot dry spots oh, yeah. than others. Yeah, they are. In fact. Berberus thumbergii, of which uh, Helmut's pillar is one of the types or one of the forms, can burn in really hot weather. But if you, there's a, range, a, a race of Berberus that are a cross between Berberus thumbergii and another one, <laughs> which the name has just gone completely out of my head, um, but it's called Berberus ottoiensis. And if you can get any of the forms of ottoiensis, it will laugh at a 45-degree day. Mm. Uh, and there are several forms out there. There's one called Superba, which is a big bulky bush with burgundy foliage. I imported one from America years ago called Silver Miles, which is burgundy with white marbling through the leaves, which is a really quite unique look. Um, so any of the Ottoiensis types, and a lot of the evergreen berberus tend to be a little bit more tolerant too to the heat. So, And some of the evergreen ones are actually very good in heavy dry shade which people don't realise. So mm. uh, they are closer to the Mahonia group, so the Mahonias are good in dry shade, shade as a rule. Yeah, yeah. So the evergreen berberuses, um, looking at berberus as it was, uh, can also be used in mm. those sort of conditions as well. So I think they're an underutilised group of plants in this country. For years there was bans against them and all sorts of things because they were seen to be hosts of wheat rust, and that was one of the reasons why we couldn't oh, bring okay. them in and what have you. Right. But it has been found that you rarely find berberus growing near wheat fields. <laughs> Funny which that. is something they hadn't thought through. <laughs> you know, so even if it is potential for Berberuses to be a host to wheat rust, you're unlikely to have hedges of Berberus in the Wimmera. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so it, it isn't likely to be an issue. Uh, and they are very pretty plants. And although, yes, slightly thorny, anybody who's got a rose bush in their garden has no excuse for not having a Berberus. Exactly. And sometimes it. you need thorns. I think they can be useful for... And a little bird. Yeah, a little yeah. bird habitat. I yeah. mean, some of the Berberuses right. are fantastic for that. Yep. So they're definitely worthwhile looking at for that particular reason as well. Yep. And, yeah, there's just so many entertaining Berberuses out there. We should be using them a lot more. And I'm starting to build my collection of Berberuses again and so I've got a few quite interesting have, ones Have you I've still got. got Silver Miles? Yes, I've got uh, some young ones good. It's a really nice Berberus so I've still got some young ones at the nursery at the moment I think in six inch pots In fact, it's one of those plants I probably should bring in and spruik at some stage and talk to people about it and post a Facebook picture of because uh, I think Silver Miles is one of my good imports that I did years ago um, and certainly I know a couple of my clients who are growing it in Melbourne say that it seems to stand up to the heat far better than any of the other Berberus Thumbergii types mm. so definitely worth it Okay. Um, so there you go excellent alright let's go next to uh, Celia out in Merricks good morning Celia good morning I was wanting some suggestions what I can do with a rhododendron that seems to be very sick mm-hmm. <clears throat> It's about 10 or 12 years old. It never grew more than a metre tall. Mm -hmm. Prolific flowering. But uh, for the last few months, it just seems to be dying from the middle outwards. It's covered with um, uh, 
flower buds that never opened. Mm. It doesn't sound good, Celia. Um, I don't like the long-term prospects of that plant. I think it's got root rot or something like that. And it's rhododendrons are one of those things that can often look like they're still alive, albeit a little bit miserable, when they're actually, uh, to all intents and purposes, already dead because they're living off the sap that's in the, in the system of the plant. Mm. And so I don't think there's a lot you can do, um, you know, a few Hail Marys, a bit of seaweed. Um, but apart from that, there's not much you can do about it. Uh, if all else fails and you're really keen to try and get keep the plant going, oh, one thing I would do is pluck all the flower buds out because they're mm. taking energy out of the plant. So I'd pluck all the flower buds off it. Um, uh, I check it out for red spider mite because rhododendrons are absolute martyrs to that, and you may have to spray a miticide to clean it up if you if you think that that's worth doing. But it does sound to me like the rhododendron is struggling, and generally speaking, when they get to that sort of point, it's sort of unlikely that they're going to return. Right. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm not holding out too much hope, I'm afraid. Right now, is there any reason not? Uh, what sort of plant could I put? In its place, is there anything that would be? Oh, there's oodles subject, of plants you could put. Subject to the to the same. Yeah, oh, look, there's lots of plants that uh, you know. I mean, if one thing's affecting a rhododendron, it's not necessarily going to affect almost anything else. Uh, but it I mean, wouldn't have, would affect another rhododendron. Uh, it could affect another rhododendron, yeah. but if it's if it's environmental issues like poor drainage or something like that, if another rhododendron is growing in slightly different conditions in the garden, it's not something that spreads. It, it's not a disease issue. It's more likely to be more a an environmental issue. Yeah, it's uh, at the end of a row of camellias which are really thriving. Yeah, well, camellias are much tougher than rhododendrons as a, as a group. Yeah. Um, uh, so you could, in fact, plant another camellia. That would be a possibility. Uh, but there's oodles of shrubs out there that you could plant in the same sorts of conditions that might be worth considering. I mean, I was looking in my garden yesterday at my Micaiah Bella is in full bloom at the moment. Now, why doesn't the frost get that? It does, but it, it comes. It seems to come back quite well. And Micaiah Bella has lovely glossy dark green leaves, and at the moment it's a mass of white trumpet flowers with purple veins through it so that the whole effect is sort of mauve when you look at it from a distance. Oh, and it, it's lovely. a lovely shrub, and you can hack it back. Um, it will grow to... Two and a half to three metres tall and as wide, so it, it will make quite a large shrub. Uh, but it can be a mass of flowers around about Christmas time, and against its dark green leaves, it's lovely. Thank you. It, it wants shade. Is your rhododendron in shade? Uh, no, it's on the east side of the veranda. Yeah, so to get the morning sun. Morning sun. Morning during the day, and then in shade by just after midday. Yeah, well, that, that should work with them. Just. Just, just Merricks, yeah. I, I would not go for a Macaia Bella there. Yeah. I think it'll get too much sun. They really like shade. Yeah. But there's still lots. I mean, the Berberus yeah. that Stephen's just been talking yeah, about there's would be lovely the there. Um, I just wouldn't put another rose. Another there. plant I was about to talk about, the Iachromas, are another group of shrubs that are quick-growing, hardy, will cope with a bit of sun, but will cope with a bit of shade. And will uh, do well in Merricks. And should do beautifully in Merricks, and, and they flower practically all the warmer months of the year. Which one was that? I didn't get Iachroma, which is I-O-C-H-R-O-M-A, Iachroma. And you can get some beautiful, you get a really beautiful blues and purples in it. Yeah, yeah. And the one I bought in this morning actually isn't blue or purple. It's actually one that was sold originally as Iachroma fuchsioides, but is now sold as Iachroma cochinia. And it's sort of a really pretty... 
Orangey apricot, pink. orangey, pinky colour, salmon, yes, yeah, something, you know, it's in that sort of colour range, and it makes an upright shrub up to about two and a half to three metres tall by about a metre and a half wide, and you can hack them back to bilio every so often to reinvigorate them again, and they start flowering in sort of mid-spring, even earlier if they don't get frosted, uh, and they can go in flower right through to the autumn. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah, so an iachroma could be good, and you can select from the purpley colours. There's actually a nice white one out there that I haven't... Well, I tried, but I planted it too late in the season, and the frost did wipe it out. So I've got to have another crack at it, one called Woolies White, which is really pretty. Um, so there's a whole range of different iachromas, but you don't see many of the different forms around. Um, uh, but yes, any of the purpley blue ones are particularly good, I think, because it's a colour you don't see all that often. Mm. And, and they're could... very rich colour. It's beautiful. Mm. Could that be cut down safely? Oh, yeah. Yeah, iochromas are one of those things you could hack them off at ground level and they'll, st- and they'll start off again. I used to hack mine at ground level every three years. Yeah. Just take it out and then let it come back up. So there you go. Thank you very much. That's again. an absolute pleasure. Good luck. Well, I'd to talk about my final plant without actually having to talk about my final plant. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, you did it. Yes, got it in. Well you done. got it in. Okay, let's go next to uh, Dalveen and uh, Druin. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Oh, we've lost her. We might have lost her. Okay. Well, maybe she'll ring us back. <laughs> yes, do. Uh, we've got, you know... 15 minutes or so. If you want to ring us back, Delbeen, we're, um, we're more than happy to uh, try and get nice and quickly to your call and take you back. Um, incidentally, did you see that uh, David Austin died? Yes, I did. It came up on Facebook and yeah. Twitter and all over the place. Mm. There was posts about 92 him and, years of age. Which is not a bad It's innings. a good inning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one, one should be pleased he did what he did. Um, mm. And... Hopefully he went out quietly, peacefully, and, and in an appropriate time and way. Well, uh, apparently, very peacefully, um, just in his sleep, surrounded by friends and family. So oh, well, can't do better than that. Uh, and, of course, at this time of year, they won't have roses. So <laughs> <laughs> They might have to import some from Israel. <laughs> so will have to have roses on his grave. Well, you would think so, yes. yes. You would think that the church would need to be full of roses. Uh, there should be roses everywhere. Of course, we could always ship them over from here. We could. Yes. You know, so Israel's that, a bit closer. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but, yes, it is. It's sad when the end of an era comes like yes. that, and particularly somebody who's been so important in horticulture. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, and such a, a, an interesting and, and obsessive character who really did some amazing things with a group of plants. Mm. So, yeah, so it is. It's a sad state of affairs when you lose somebody as important in an industry as he was. Mm. Um, so does that mean there won't ever be any more David Austin roses? Well, there's or, rather a lot of them to keep going. Yeah, well, there's, it's probably a lot in the pipeline that yes. can still be named and so forth. But one wonders whether you can consider a breeding line finishing at the end of the breeder's life um, because anything that's done with those plants from them aren't done by him. Him, yes, absolutely. So, you know, does the David Austin Roses sort of line stop at some point? We had our Plant Mm. Trust Christmas do a couple of weeks ago and we went to John Newstig's garden. All right. And he had a paddock with something like 5,000 roses coming up in it. Oh, and his garden was absolutely beautiful. It was. It was gorgeous. E- even the non-Rosarian Stephen enjoyed his look around. <laughs> Although I have to say I started humming the bridal march as I went down the, the big sort of 
uh, row of roses with the arches over oh, the top yes. and it was all pink and flowery and yep. what have you. And yep. I thought this would be the perfect place to do the bridal march all the way down there, down to the paddock. <laughs> um, but yeah, John's collection of roses was quite remarkable. Absolutely fabulous. And his knowledge is completely and utterly un beatable in mm. this country, I think, mm. when it comes to anything rose. Yeah. So uh, yes, he can tell you the background and the and the history and the whole thing about pretty well every rose he's got, I think. Wow. Yes, so. it, it was it was fabulous. So we went to Meg Bentley's first. Oh, yes. And her wonderful salvia collection. Mm. Then went to John. She's such a sage, that woman. She is. She is a sage <laughs> and a saint. <laughs> and then we finished up at my garden. So we had an absolutely wonderful day. Mm. So lovely. I've got to top it next year. <laughs> I'm already working on it. Oh dear. Yeah. So yeah, so we had a lovely Christmas yeah, party. Because I work because my garden was in the secret gardens of the Dandenongs this year. I worked on it quite hard, and it's really made a difference. You know, I, I it looks really full, but it's fuller because I took a lot out. Mm. It's sort of interesting how those things work. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes by removing things, you give other things the air and space they that need. They actually to really, need to yeah, have to, shape to really perform. So yes. it can make a difference. So less can be more, mm. quite literally. Mm. Yes. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a it was a great day out. Uh, I didn't want it to finish, but it had to eventually, I suppose. <laughs> um, and it's one of the good things about that little organisation of ours, Plant Trust, is that we do do some really interesting. Events and days out. And I think things. our events are fantastic. Yeah, you know, we such, to, we've got yeah. such an interesting group of yeah. members, so we have a really good time, don't yeah, we? We do. You know, mm. there's a whole pile of plant geeks get together, and it's fun. <laughs> uh, and we all prattle on about plants, knowing full well that nobody's going to get bored. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you, you could say that we're in our element. Really, unless we get involved with that lot. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, let's go to our next caller. We have uh, Bernie in Langwarren. Good morning, Bernie. Mm. Good morning to you all and compliments to another season. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, Clivia, now I know Stephen said they get hit by frost oh, quite yes. hard, which mine have. I'd like to know when to lift them and put them in pots. And mm. do, but I believe they don't mind being crowded in no, pots. They're actually quite good in a comparatively small pot, so you can let one sort of virtually bulge from a pot, and it will still flower, and it will still perform, um, particularly if you do, you know, feed it a little bit and give it a little bit of water periodically. They, they will tolerate a lot of neglect in pots, but you'll get the best out of them if you, in fact, do care for them a little bit. As far as lifting and potting them is concerned, you do that when you've got the time to do that. Um, the only time I wouldn't lift them uh, is when their flower buds are coming up because at that point in time you're likely to damage them. Um, so if I wanted to do some now, I'd do some now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't think twice about it. Um, in fact, I remember years ago um, uh, a friend of mine's mother was selling up their house and they had a batch of it growing in the garden. And I think it was about January and it was stinking hot and it was awful. Um, and they said, oh, do you want to come and get some? So I went down, dug them up, shoved them in the back of the van, took them home, shoved them in the garden, quite literally, uh, watered them in and then completely ignored them. And I don't think I lost a one. Mm. So they are remarkably tough plants, so they will tolerate being dealt with. Uh, and, yeah, put them in appropriate size pots for the number of crowns that you're going to put in the pot, but then don't worry if they get really crowded. So yeah, Now, I was going to use um, a compost and organic soil, mm-hmm. not potting mix. Would that be all right? Look, it would be, but I still think that potting mix is made for pots. Um, and... The issue you've got with using compost and organic soils is that 
over a period of time that will break down further and turn into humus, humus and wash out the bottoms of the draining holes. Um, so it, it, or it could in fact become porridgey in the pot. So if you were going to use compost and organic soil, um, I would also mix some sharp sand or some scoria pebbles through it or something like that to give it a bit more bulk as well. Uh, so you need to make up a, a, an equivalent of a potting mix. So it has to have good drainage. It needs to have some permanent structural materials in it, hence the gravel or sand. Um, uh, and it would need to have organic material in it that will feed the plants, hence your compost and things would do that. But you'll need more than just the, the soil and compost. Fair enough. Now, can I just ask one more question? Sure. Now, I have a salvia, and it looked as though something was either eating it or might have even been a virus, and I sprayed it, believe it or not, with pyrethrum, which I believe is a fairly benign spray. Well, it's an insecticide. It seemed to knock the salvia, you mean. Yeah, I don't think it's killed it, but it's made it look pretty sick. Is it in a pot or in the ground? No, in the ground. And which one is it? Do you know? Uh, it's the red one. I don't know what one it is. Right here. Mm, Big or little? Uh, well, I, I did cut it right back this year, cut it back hard. And it, it started to grow and look good, but it looked like um, sort of, um, what do you call it, um, ear-picked. <laughs> so it had little, little holes in the leaves. Little bits out of each. A leaf. Yeah, well, it sounds like some sort of insect attack, so that, that would make logical sense. If it's looking sick now, I would give it some seaweed. Seaweed um, spray or water? Or just put some seaweed into the into a watering can and give it a bit of seaweed. So feed it? Yeah, yeah. well, yes, no. but... She's not feeding it. Seaweed, yes, feed it with seaweed, but it's but don't not with anything else because seaweed is actually a tonic for the plant rather than a food. Yeah, it's a foliage spray, yeah. isn't it? And it'll strengthen the plant. You don't want to give it any food, as in compost. Yeah, it's like if you're sick and in hospital, you want a pill to fix you, you don't want a three-course meal mm. because you're not going to be able to deal with it. And it's the same with a plant. If you overfeed a plant that's already un- unwell... Unwell, that can tip it over the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so the seaweed is more, for, more like a pill. It's a, it's a tonic. All right, well, thanks very much. And, again, all the best for the season. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Bye. 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 Right, next up we have, uh, where are we, Michael in Forest Hill. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, g'day, how are you going? We're well, thanks. Yeah, look, just um, just talking about the um, the deluge of rain that we've had. Um, uh, look, I, um, I, I, I've dug up my front front lawn and I've turned it into a swale mm. and I really recommend that people do that. Um, I just sort of think that... Uh, we we are losing um, groundwater. We, we've got a creek down the down the sort of bottom of the hill down here, sort of thing. But um, I, I, I'm just sort of saying that um, I, 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 it's getting I, I, heavier and heavier, isn't it? Those yeah, deluges. And, yeah, and I think really capturing that water, um, uh, you know, is, is, is seems like a really good idea. But I I just yeah, I'm just interested in the feedback that you might have on that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Well, certainly swale-type things are, in fact, you know, a long, um, long-held belief, and they do work. They slow the water down so it doesn't just run off and end up in the gutter somewhere. So you're holding water 
in your garden. Uh, so if you can manage the water in your garden that way, it's fantastic. It's, uh, it does work really well. Um, and, uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, we can't just keep using up water the way we have. So we've got to have yeah. ways and means of, of managing the water on site. And even within a small suburban space, you can actually have quite a bit of impact. Um, and things like rainwater gardens and things like that, they all yeah. sort of have their place that we should be looking at. Yeah, I can, I can, I, I can tell you, I can tell you uh, when, when, when the rain hits around here, because with the c- c- clay soil, um, it, uh, it really pools and turns into a sort of a pond sort of thing. But, but it's, it's uh, you know, uh, it's ideal sort of thing for um, if, you, if, if you sort of seize the day sort of thing and, mm. and, uh, and you know, you've got your plants in at the, at the right time and the right sort of plants. But, uh, very true, Michael, very true. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I just thought I'd, uh, you know, we, we, don't, we, we don't see enough of that around here sort of thing. I just sort of think mm-hmm. that um, if anyone's listening around here up, up this way, Forest Hill and all that sort of thing, um, dig up your front lawn and... Uh, Gather the water, uh, catch the water. Ca- ca- capture water. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's basically all, all I'm trying to sort of say, you know. Yeah. To, Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that input. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Next, we must go to um, who have we got? Uh, Let me see. Um, Wendy, I think we've got online. Are you there, Wendy? Yes, I am. And it's the Wendy you spoke to earlier from Reservoir. All right. So I'm all excited now about getting my garden beds ready when I get rid of the cooch grass and the ash trees. (laughs) Right. Um, And I've actually been been waiting. I've got a whole lot of plants in pots, which I hoped to be able to plant last spring, but wasn't able to. Um, so I'm just interested now. I mean, probably middle, middle of summer coming up, it's probably not a good time to take plants out of pots and put them in the soil, but then they're probably going to more likely to survive, perhaps, than in, if they stay in pots. I'm thinking my blueberries, my raspberries, gooseberry. Yeah, um, I've got I some still, Chinese lanterns. Yeah, I still maintain, though, that um, if you can keep things in pots whilst you're getting ground prepared, I think yep. too many people get too impatient to get things into the ground when the ground isn't properly ready. Um, right. So you need to get that ground dug. You need to get your cooch out. You need to get some compost and manure and, and good stuff yep. into the ground. And that's all going to take time, and you yep. need to do it thoroughly. There's no point in going out and buying one bag of cow manure and throwing it over a whole backyard because it's not going to do anything. So you need to do a concentrated area. And then as you finish that area, then you might consider starting to plant it. Uh, And so you'd put the odd plant in. uh, And you can do that through the summer as long as you're not disturbing the roots too much and as long as you keep them reasonably well watered when they go in. Because in warm soil, roots will move really quickly if there's moisture. And again, use use the seaweed when you put them in. Mm. Yes. And, and keep the water up. I mean, as long as they don't dry out, it's a good... It, we yes. don't plant in summer because it takes the water. But yes. if you're prepared to get a high water bill for one year, fire yeah, away. And you can do it. I mean, I, I've planted it virtually any time of the year if I've had to, uh, mm. for whatever okay. reasons. So I'm not too perturbed about that. But I wouldn't necessarily want to have a whole new garden planted that I had to look after for the rest of the summer if it right. got dry. So do it in, in sections. Work out where the most important yep. spot is to you. Go and get the cooch out of that spot, get it dug, yep. and then get those plants in, and then move on to the next bit. Just do bits right. at a time that you can manage. Will do. Okay, good right. advice. Thanks again. Okay. That's a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Yes, it's only taken me 30 years to get around my garden. (laughs) 
Right, very quickly, we must go to uh, Thomas in Albert Park. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning, Hello, Stephen. Thomas. Good morning. How are you? Um, Stephen, the turpentine. I've mm. got some in front of me. It's called pure gum turpentine. It's used for artists who paint pictures. Yeah, that should be natural turps. So that's okay? Yeah, yeah, that, that should be fine. If it says mineral on it anywhere, uh, I would worry. But if it's, if it's gum turps, then I would it's say that's natural. It costs a fortune to buy. Oh, yes, and none oh, of yes. those things are cheap. But you only need a very small amount to deal with the, the borer issue I was talking about earlier. Okay. So you put it in... Yeah, just in a little um, syringe, what you do is you clean the sawdust away so that you can see what yeah. you're doing, because they always make that ring of sawdust. Uh, clean the sawdust away, find the hole, put a small amount of the turps into uh, a syringe without a needle, uh, and just squirt it down the hole. Thank you, Stephen. That's, okay. uh, it's as simple as that. Okay. Happy Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Same, Same to you, Tommy. Happy Christmas, bye. Thomas. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, we have run out of time, I hate to uh, say. Uh, another one's over and it's the last for the year. It is the last for the year. A reminder to all our listeners, we will be back on Sunday the 3rd of February. Um, and uh, a very, very happy Christmas to all of you. Stay safe, stay healthy and, uh, and happy enjoy gardening. The garden. yeah, and enjoy and the garden. sit in it. Don't just feel it's always for work. Yeah, well, Do exactly. sit in your garden and yeah. enjoy the... I think I have to open a space to sit in mine at the moment, but anyhow. <laughs> uh, but it is. Enjoy the garden. That's what it's there for. Absolutely. Yeah. Look at the bird life. Look at, look at your plants, but um, enjoy it. That's mm. what it's all about. A big thank you to uh, Robin and Rosemary who've been handling all the calls this morning. As I said, uh, do have a relaxing, healthy time and uh, we'll be delighted to return back on Sunday, the 3rd of February. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.